Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. I, I say it that way jokingly because, of course, we've moved the expert panel calls to Friday. And the call-in shows for Jack to Thursday, and the call-in shows to Jack for, for a long, long time, for years, were Friday, Friday, Friday shows, like the Friday Monster Truck thing. I, I think we're going to put Friday, Friday, Friday to bed, unless I hear from you guys that you really still want to hear it. But um, this is a, a kind of a restart now, a reboot show for me. When I moved the uh, expert panel shows to Friday, it was my intention to start doing these shows on Thursday. That's what's going to happen. That's going to be the new schedule. But uh, there was a vacation, there was some other things, there was some double-booked uh, interviews and things like that. So this is the first Jack Collin show in quite a while. Uh, so hopefully you guys will enjoy it. I think I have seven or eight queued up for you today. To make a call for a show like this, call 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Leave your uh, question or your comment, and uh, I will uh, try to get you on a show in the future. It's actually more likely you'll get on the air with a call than with an email. If you follow my instructions, instruction number one, call, call from a quiet place. Instruction number two, if you're going to use a cell phone, which most of us do this day and age, uh, make sure there's some bars on it. Make sure you're not sitting there with one bar because there will be nobody to tell you you're all broken up. Third, and this is the most important one, and I'm going to give you an example today without embarrassing anybody by doing it generically, but you have got to ask your freaking question. I, I know I sound like I'm being a jerk. I'm not. Guys, I have to screen these things and get this all done and get the show up and what have you. And when I'm screening calls, I can't sit for 45 seconds to know what the hell you're calling me about. So here is a typical call that doesn't get on the air, just kind of made up randomly. Hi, Jack. This is uh, Joe from um, Colorado, and I have a house, and my house is on a hill. And that hill has trees and grass on it. And I was wondering if you could help me out with a problem. See, I, I moved to this house like six years ago, and when I moved in, I really liked it. And it was a great house. And it's just still a great house, but, well, there's a hill. And at the top of the hill, there's these other people. And they just moved in. And, um, well, you know, I'm trying to be a good neighbor. And I don't know what your freaking question is to leave. You know, that's, guys, that's how it goes. I, I know I sound like a jerk, man. I, I do. But I cannot do all of this stuff to produce these shows on my own and sit there for 30, 45 seconds and still not know what the hell your question is. So, if you want to get your question on the air, Hi, Jack, my name is Joe. My question is, bam, 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 bam. Here are the details. If you do that, your odds of getting on the air go up astronomically if you follow the other two rules. Again, the number to call, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Remember, no more calls for the expert panel. Expert panel, you email those to me, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSP expert in the subject line, and uh, we'll get that to the expert of, of uh, the proper expert for a show in the future on the Fridays. With that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you. Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear, 
gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontalis saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later. It was February of the next year that we launched the MSB, and we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original survival podcast sponsor, because they were first and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode I have. Have it your way, the Jamestown House of Burgess. I also have The Deadly Economic Logic of Southern Slavery and The Thirty Years' War, The Budweiser Battle. As a beer drinker, I wanted to read The Budweiser Battle, but I think it's a little deeper if we read The Deadly Economic Logic of Slavery from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com. Since the year is 1619, or since the episode of 1619, the year is 1619, and in 1619, Virginia farmers are short on labor and it's harvest time. They have a new cash crop to get in and are looking at 1,000% profit on their investment if they can just bring it in to harvest. That's when a Dutch pirate ship comes into port selling slaves. The farmers put these slaves to work. The status of these slaves is not clear. 
but clearly they are not free to leave. They might be indentured servants working off their debt or lifetime slaves. No one has put much thought into it. In either case, the new labor force must work. Thus begins the ugly history of English slavery in America. The history of Portuguese, Spanish, and Dutch slavery in the New World has been well established. Eventually, English slavery will be outlawed by a monumental determination and a drive of William Wilberforce in 1807. Outlawing slavery in the United States will take considerably longer. My take by Alex Shrugged. England was an unlikely nation to embrace slavery because the Barbary pirates had enslaved so many English sailors. And from an economic standpoint, slavery doesn't make much sense. A slave costs the equivalent of four years of a laborer's salary, whereas an indentured servant costs about 1.6 years worth. Given those upfront costs, only the knucklehead would use slave labor. But practical experience in the new world demonstrated that most indentured servants died within their first year from disease, like malaria, and American Indians were dropping like fries from various European diseases. African slaves were resistant to many diseases that plagued the southern plantations and had already been exposed to European diseases. FYI, no one realized what germs were. They certainly weren't thinking of mosquitoes as vectors for disease. They simply saw who lived, who died, and made their calculations accordingly. It was an ugly business. Um, I have a different take on this. Two totally different takes. Um, and I want to temper this. First of all, slavery is evil. Okay, I think all slavery not only should be illegal, but people that do it should be probably shot in the head. Okay, Just saying, just so that no one misconstrues what I'm saying here. Um, first of all, the English were unlikely to embrace slavery. I think that it's probably the case that the average Englishman would have been appalled by slavery. However, there was this group of people over here in this new world trying to eke out a living, uh, and very quickly were in, into what you would consider a survival mode. Uh, yes, a thousand percent profit sounds great, but it doesn't do you any good even if you make it if you're dead. Uh, the people that made it here for the first 50, 100 years were tough sons of bitches. And quickly came to realize the way to survive was by any means necessary. So when this new asset showed up, these people, so you got to put yourself in the minds of these people. These people are already slaves. They're already being held by these pirates. If we don't buy them and put them to work, they're either going to get sold to somebody else, or they're going to get tired of carting them around and they're going to toss them in the ocean. Well, they're better off alive as slaves than dead out at sea. So we might as well buy them and put them to work. Once you have them, you can't just feed them. They have to earn a living, so to speak, so you put them to work. This starts to work out, and frankly, if you think about the first slaves as they came off this ship, they're probably like, as bad as this sucks. This is a hell of a lot better than being back out in the ocean to ship with all those pirates that grabbed us and what have you. So they probably took to their captivity relatively easily. Because if you run away, there's a bunch of Indians out there that are going to kill you. Right? Even if that's not true, that's what they were probably told. And they didn't have any idea how to make a living off the land they were on. This is a totally different place for them. So at least there's uh, shelter here, there's food, there's water, there's other people. And it's probably the case that at this point these people weren't treated like complete and total shit, just probably like shit. Right? So probably not as bad as it eventually got for slaves. It's the best way I can put it, because... You, you needed them. <laughs> you really needed them. And there wasn't like another ship coming in next week with more. So you had to maybe use a little bit more care. All right. Why do I point this all out? Because it leads to the actual thing that's a lesson today. While the average Englishman probably had no stomach for slavery in England where they could see it, the fact that it was happening somewhere way across that ocean 
and I don't have to see it, and I don't have to look at it, and money's coming into my country, and our country's expanding and doing well because of it, I think it's okay now. Is that anything like warfare? That, that's, that's my take on this. Uh, that, that, that's really what I think is one of the major lessons here, is that while England was opposed to slavery, it was only when they had to see it that they were really opposed to it. And when they didn't actually see the horrors of it, but they had the benefits from it, they were, eh, okay, I'd prefer not, but that's what those crazy guys over there do. You know, those are the tough sons of bitches on the other side of the pond. Out there in the colonies, they got to do it to get it done, and hey, it works out for everyone. And slavery was accepted globally at the time. So war is accepted globally right now. War is something that happens. You know, there's rules for war and agreements to how wars are prosecuted. And, hey, it's happening over there. And the guys they're fighting are bad guys anyway. Yeah, okay. The next is the economics of slavery do not work out well. And that's why we have our modern form of slavery. Slavery to debt. Slavery to the state. So the way slavery to the state works is easy. Taxation. The way slavery to debt works is the state convinces you that you need debt to get the things you need to live the dream of your state. So then you, you know, mortgage your life, your house, your life, your education, everything, and you end up paying back the banks that own the state and the state for life in the form of taxes and debt and interest. My take by Jack Spearger. You can read the other history segments at tspwiki.com, the Self-Sufficiency, Survival, and Liberty Wiki. You'll find all things uh, survivalism there. It is like an encyclopedia of survival with a historical twist thrown in, thanks to the awesome Alex Shrug. Thank you always, Alex, for these great segments you leave for us a lot. Next up, before I take your first call, hey. How about you consider joining the Members Support Brigade? Join the MSB and you can help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters all qualify for a discount. You guys email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences and I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service. Do this before, not after you join everybody else. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on members and see all the great benefits like these 66 different vendors. I have discounts to you for, for things you're probably buying anyway that will put money back in your pocket by the end of the year. With that, I'm ready to get into the main topic of today's show, but I have an announcement today. Yes, I do. Before I take your first call, I have to tell you that we have sat down, thought about it, figured it out, reached out to some really awesome people, and uh, figured out what we're doing for workshops at the TSP Ranch, also known as Black Dog Ranch, uh, which is my little three-acre uh, duck farm here in near Azel, Texas. And we are going to be doing two fall workshops this year. We skipped them this spring. Uh, that was a hard decision, but we decided it was the right thing. We did this, this, the, you know, the short work ins, one day work with Jack things. These are going to be th full three day workshops and really they're, they're, they can come out to be, you know, five because most people show up on a Wednesday and leave Sunday morning. Uh, and then the workshops are Thursday, Friday and Saturday. They're going to be the weeks of uh, September 30th to October 4th and November 11 through 15. Um, the first one is going to focus on Quite a bit of stuff, and one of our big special guests is going to be John Dowie from Dowie Farms. So obviously we're going to be talking about ducks, uh, the duck egg business. We're going to be talking about microgreens. We're going to be doing a microgreen class. We're going to be installing some container worm gardens. I'm going to be leading that. We're going to be doing some work out on our western pasture. The second one, November 11th through 15, we are going to have Brad Davies coming in, and we're going to be focusing on quail 
We're also going to be doing some some uh, training on how to use SketchUp for permaculture design. So people that want to be able to take and use the SketchUp program, which is a free software program, and bring topographical information to Brad's going to do a class on that. Uh, we're going to be doing greenhouses uh, at the first one and some setup stuff with the greenhouses on the second one. John's going to actually be uh, leading us through building a greenhouse based on Tex uh, Southern Texas Prepper or Texas Prepper 2. I can't remember the guy's name that came up with it, but we're going to be doing a modified version of it. Uh, quail raising, quail processing, we'll be doing at the second one. Both of them we'll be doing dry canning workshops with. I'll be teaching you guys how to do dry canning. We'll have bee instruction, either Michael Jordan or Jason, my bee mentor, or both. I don't know yet. I haven't figured that out yet. Pug John Pugliano will be at one of them, if not both of them, on financial management. I'll be doing classes on fermented foods. Uh, and that is just what we have on deck for right now. Again, the weeks are September 30th through October 4th and November 11th through 15th. I'm going to do something a little bit different this time. I'm going to get everything ready to take registrations, and I'm going to announce the date that we will start taking registrations a few days in advance. And I will say on 8 o'clock in the morning of whatever day, we will start taking reservations. Um, I will open it to MSB members first. And then I will open it to everybody else a couple hours afterward. I always give the MSB members kind of a head start on this. These workshops always fill up. I, I love having, the, you know, there's been over 200 students on property at this time, 200 individuals. Uh, we usually take about 30 to 40 somewhere in the head count per class. We're going to try to do these larger classes because we're only doing two this year. So it's probably 34 to 36 students per class. Um, and I love having you guys come back, and I hope a lot of you come back. That said, I'd love to have some new people. Uh, that haven't been here yet, these workshops are the most amazing thing that, that I've ever been to, and I'm, I'm blessed to be the person that puts them on. Uh, it's something you'll have to experience to truly understand, but you know, half a week of, of being with people who are just like you in an environment conducive to learning and, and sharing knowledge and training, and you'll learn as much from the, your fellow students as you will from myself and my, my instructors. Um, you will leave transformed. I, I really believe that. When we first put these together, we set a high bar for ourselves and said we probably won't hit it. You know, I, I said in the first workshop, we'll probably screw stuff up and come anyway. At the end of that one, people said, guys, you nailed this. This was You didn't mess anything up. And I still feel like we did. And I feel like over the years, we've gotten really good at this. I feel that we put on one of the best self-sufficiency, permaculture-style uh, workshops that's available anywhere. Uh, price is 500 bucks. So you should take a hundred dollar deposit to hold your seat and 400 due on arrival. And trust me, we'll put $300 worth of food in you alone. Uh, if you went out and bought it, that's what it would cost you. We feed you. If you leave here hungry, you chose to, we make you feel at home, plenty of beverages. Um, so it'll probably be next week. I'll be announcing the dates for re start registration for the first one. And then a few weeks later, after that one's booked up, we'll open up the second one. And I'll have by then I'll have full details on exactly what's going on at both of them. But again, stuff we're going to be covering: dry canning, quail processing, quail raising, the ins and outs of the duck business, and not just how the duck stuff. Like walking through and showing you what we do is easy. I'm going to actually have a PowerPoint going through the ducks, SketchUp for design, uh, greenhouse construction and setup, uh, bees, financial management, fermented foods, microgreens, container worm gardens, and the container worm gardens guys. I have. Something that's going to be awesome. When you guys see what we're putting in, uh, it, it'll be kind of blow you away. Anyway, just wanted to have that little announcement with you. So uh, be on the lookout for announcements for these two awesome, awesome workshops. 
Uh, next up, let's go ahead and take your first call. I know it was kind of a long intro, but uh, we're back with the calls. Jack, this is Steve in South Carolina. I was wondering what your thoughts, if any, were on keeping a botanical supplement legal. I own a business selling an herb called Kratom that is taking a lot of heat right now. My question is, would it be wise to educate the naysayers or just lay low? It doesn't take too long to put two and two together on why the pharmaceutical companies are demonizing it so much. Thanks, Jack. I've been listening since the early days in the Jetta, and I owe you a lot, man. Uh, the, the, the short answer to that one is I, I really don't know, and I don't know that um, anything one individual selling or marketing this herb does, unless something really bad happens because of it, is going to make a big difference on the overall thing. First, I want to say I had to look up Kratom. Um, I didn't know what it was when I heard it, and then when I looked it up, I went, oh, yeah, that stuff. Um, This is a plant that's a member of the same family the coffee plant is a member of. It's a tropical plant. You can grow it in your house. Uh, one way to think of it would be like a, a more mild form of opium. And when I say that, uh, I don't mean that it is opium light. I mean that it's, its methodology of acting on the human body is very similar to opiates, uh, such as morphine. Uh, it is not opium. It doesn't have any of the same things in it that opium uh, does or other opiates like, you know, heroin and, 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 and what have you do. Um, it just happens to work on the opiate receptors in the human body, so it has a very similar effect. It's actually been used for everything from pain relief to recreational use and to even from uh, morphine addicts uh, using it as a method of coming off of morphine. And Thailand is one of the nations where it is illegal. And Thailand is strictest. Thailand is one of the strictest totalitarian governments, especially about substances that you will find anywhere. People would think Thailand, you know, anything goes, not so much. Thailand is a place where a lot of times you can bribe uh, local officials to look the other way while you do something. But if you get caught, the laws uh, are, are draconian and the penalties are even more draconian. Uh, so Th Thailand, as strict as it is, is looking at this and going, we have so many people addicted uh, to to opiates here. And we can say whatever we want about putting them in prison, but this is this is really a problem in our country, and this might be a solution. So they're looking at legalizing it. The United States is doing research into how it can be refined and purified and made into known dosages and then used specifically in drug rehab centers. So I've got some... Uh, different links for you. I have a link to what's called the Kratom User's Guide. This was updated June 27, 2015, so it's pretty new. It's on a website called sagewisdom.org, and this is basically people that use Kratom, Kratom as a drug. Um, so you're going to the drug dealer to get your information from the drugs. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Um, the person that uses morphine can tell you how to use morphine without killing yourself. And I don't think Kratom's going to kill you unless you do something really, really, really stupid. In fact, it's, it, it, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, but, you know, as far as like interactions, what not to take it with, how much to take, how to slowly figure out what works for you, etc., you, you learn all that from someone that uses it, not from a government that goes, oh, it's evil, don't do it. Um, I'll talk more about what I think the actual uses are for preppers with this here in a second, but I want to talk a little bit more about what it does and what its advantages over opiates are. 
So, of course, everybody, morphine, boo, hiss, you know, uh, heroin, boo, hiss. And, yeah, there's no shit. The street versions of those drugs, yeah. But they're used all the time in, in the medical establishment, including hospitals. And there's people that in certain situations, morphine is what keeps them from killing themselves due to pain. The problem with all of these opiates is as you increase dosage, you suppress uh, the respiratory system to the point where uh, sometimes to give people a certain dosage of morphine, you literally have to put them in ICU to monitor their breathing. And there's people that have things that have occurred to them, like massive burns, for instance. Or my wife, when she went went kind of, you know, just totally uh, postal with her trigeminal neuralgia awaiting her surgery, where it was like somebody was running electrical pulses in her face. We got her into the hospital. No, no... Um, type of uh, painkiller would work other than morphine, and they gave her morphine by IV, and they took her to the point they said, we can't do anymore, or she'll have to be in ICU, and she'll be there tomorrow after surgery anyway, and then we'll give her whatever she needs, but this is, and you know, that kept her able to sleep through the night, uh, you know, waiting surgery in the morning, uh, so we use those drugs, and we use them with very significant risks, even in you know, proper dosages and things like that. And this is nowhere near as strong, but it comes without those risks to a large degree. Research was done with rodents where they OD'd the shit out of them, and they never went into respiratory arrest. They never stopped breathing. Now, I'm not suggesting you try it for yourself. I'm just saying that when they, you know, they, they gave these things as much as they could give them before they're like, dude, I can't do anymore. I'm going to go to sleep now. And they did not, they did not die because their breathing was repressed. So that seems to have a lot of value. Now, what this stuff does is in small doses, it's a stimulant for most people. And in larger doses, it becomes a relaxant and a painkiller. It has both stimulant and, and depressant effects. So I think that this is the kind of thing that you might want to make a house plant of yours out of, at least until they say it's illegal and try to make it a felony to own one. Because this seems like a godsend in a situation where we, we do have, uh, you know, a grid down scenario and you have, a, you know, a serious injury with pain that you're trying to deal with. And it might even be worth experimenting with slightly. Um, I hesitate to say that, but to just learn how to use it. But I, I kind of hedge against that. I believe on everything I've read, that recreational use of this can become addictive. Um, the doctor's opinions that I've read on this, and I have three different articles I'll link to on it, uh, lead me to believe that it can be addictive. I don't think it's anywhere near as addictive as your opiates, but I think that anything that controls your life is probably a bad thing, and I think this could lead there for people. But if a person's already a heroin addict, uh, and, this, and they, can, they can switch to being a kratom addict, I think they'd be a lot better off. A, a lot better off. And I, I don't say that facetiously. I'm serious. I, I think if you could trade one for the other, I mean, I, I'd say do it in a heartbeat. Um, though I don't know how well that will really work. As to the original question, here's what I think is going to happen with this. I think more and more people are going to discover it. I think more and more people are going to use it as a recreational drug. I think sooner or later somebody's going to do something stupid like drink four or five of those uh, five-hour energies or something with it at the same time and take an overdose of it and create a major uh, counter-reaction in between caffeine and this stuff because caffeine is one of the things you should not take at the same time you're taking this. 
and stop their heart because they were an idiot. And then the liberal bleeding hearts will get up, oh my God, we have to stop this. Even though this stuff's been used for thousands of years uh, with as much safety as any other drug that you can find. Uh, I guess the only thing I can tell you that would be probably a safer drug in history is marijuana. I mean, it, it's, it's not that safe, but it's as safe, almost. Uh, but when that happens, I think you're going to see a major legislative push. I don't think the government will bother until something like that happens. They're going to need, you know, this tragedy. We can't have one more person die from this. Well, you know, 33,000 or whatever it is a year die in cars. Uh, well, the, the biggest killer in America today is probably high fructose corn syrup and its effects with type 2 diabetes and coronary disease and everything else that goes along with it. We'll, we'll make one person who did something stupid out of this, the, the poster boy. I don't think the government has it in them right now, the federal government anyway, to do a lot about something like this. Um, we're in a world where like the, the marijuana thing's turning the corner. And the, the federal government, despite Chris Christie's fat-ass mouth, is pretty much said, this isn't worth it anymore. This, if Colorado wants it legal, if California wants it legal, whatever, this is not worth We don't have the money. We don't have the time. We don't have the energy. The, the people have changed their mind on this issue. This is not worth fighting over. Um, you know, with fat-ass Chris Christie, he's like, Colorado pot smokers better enjoy it when I'm president. Well, that's not going to happen, fat-ass. That guy, if there was anything that would, that would make it less likely that that fat-ass would be president, uh, that would be it. What I loved about him was he said something along the lines of, people need to learn self-control. And uh, somebody posted a picture of him saying that. and said, this guy's 300 pounds, and he talks about self-control. I said the last time that guy saw 300, it was a movie. Okay, that, that guy hasn't seen 300 pounds since he was, I don't know, pr probably a, a sophomore in college. Uh, that dude's got to be pushing 400. And uh, so he, don't don't lecture America about self-control, lardass, seriously. Um, you know, in, in the past, I struggled uh, with, with weight myself. And uh, so I, I don't say that, you know, to be unkind, but... When you hear somebody talking about, you know, taking liberty away over self-control, they, they can't even control the amount of pie they shove in their face. It is kind of ironic. But I, I don't know. I think if you were to do something like a major push toward education like the, you know, North American Kratom Users Association or Kratom, you know, Growers Association and try to make it better known, it, it, it's likely to actually attract more people to try to, to, to shut it down. There are people who live to tell other people how to live. That's their whole thing. Uh, think of the children. You guys know the type I'm talking about. And this would be, this will be in our schools. And right now there's meth in your school, idiot. Right now there's heroin and crack in your school, idiot. And you're worried about this, right? But, well, if we make it illegal, it won't be there. Well, have the meth, the heroin, the crack, et cetera, get in your schools. I mean, the biggest lie the, the government has told in, in regard to drugs is that laws work. The laws will keep drugs from your schools. You can't use law to keep drugs out of prison, telling the American people you can use laws to keep drugs out of school. I, I swear to God, every politician ever says that should be immediately stripped of office and thrown out on their ass. I mean, because you're lying. You're, you're absolutely a lying bastard when you tell Americans that laws keep drugs out of their schools. They don't. Again, you can't keep drugs out of the prison, 24-7 guarded, Everybody searched every day, and there's drugs in prison you're going to keep out of schools. Bullshit. So, obviously, I don't think this, this substance should be further regulated. 
I do think it needs to be used with caution and responsibility. My biggest fear for its legal status is someone sooner or later will do something really stupid and you know they'll bring out the special interest news story and did this have to happen and crap like that. I don't know. Um, so I wish I could give you better advice, but I think the big takeaway here is this is a legitimate uh, herbal drug that for a time is legal and it has the similar pain reduction characteristics and um, ability sedation characteristics to opiates. And if we are ever in a grid down without rule of law scenario and we need something to fill this niche, uh, this is definitely a safe alternative uh, for that type of use to something like, you know, heroin or morphine. If you came by that by ill gotten means. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Brian in North Texas. Hey, I wanted to uh, see if you couldn't maybe talk about overseeding a pasture, not necessarily what seeds to put in, but more just techniques. Uh, a little background, I mean, last fall I tried to overseed uh, my front pasture and got fairly poor results. Uh, I just basically threw the seed on the ground right before it rained uh, after I'd already mowed everything. And I was wondering if when you're overseeding a pasture, you're better off to disc it, you're better off to till it. Did I just have bad luck on what I did and throwing it on the ground is the best way? I mean, kind of what's, what's the best way to do it? Thanks, Jack. Love the show. So let's first of all talk about the difference between if we're going to overseed something versus cover crop something. Cover cropping is something we do for a time when a soil's been disturbed to stabilize it so that it doesn't further destabilize and so that other things can start to grow and it can transition into something perennial or we can hold it together, let's say, through winter and then it's going to be cultivated again into annual production. So that's cover crop. Overseeding is saying, hey, there, we need to improve this piece of land. We need to improve this piece of land. And it's it, it's it's just not what it could be. And it's got sparse vegetation, but it's got vegetation. So what we're going to do is we're going to go in and we're going to put seed down at an appropriate time, an appropriate type of seed, in hopes that we make this thicker, fuller, more vegetated, uh, more stable, more lush, better pasture. And... The distinctive thing that I got out of what you said there was I heard nothing about animals, and I heard mow. So that means we're trying to manage pasture with a mower, which isn't easy to do and to begin with. It's also much harder in certain climates. Based on your phone number, and I won't say anything too specific, but you are close to me. Now, that close could be 100 miles, it could be 10, I don't really know, but you're close to me. You're somewhere in a 100-mile circle around me. Uh, this is what we call the Blackland Prairie, and Blackland sounds good, but it ain't, um, this whole area of North Texas. Until you go far enough east, you start to get another red, you know, regular amounts of red clay and things like that, and sandy loam, this is the Blackland Prairie. This is a black clay, sometimes a little bit loamy. It is highly alkaline, up in the 7.6 to 8.2 pH, and if you're on the say my, to, to my area or west or certain areas north and and southwest of me, you're also in very shallow blackland prairie where you've got this limestone underneath. This all matters. This this all matters. If I could tell you what to throw on the ground here 
just throw on the ground at, right before it rains and grow, I would, and I'd be happy, and I'd be throwing it the hell out here like crazy. And then this year, we got this massive, massive rain in, in May uh, to the point where it was really a problem. A lot of stuff got drounded. Uh, fields had standing water. So a lot of the plants and stuff and weeds got suppressed. The taller, more uh, water-tolerant uh, species survived. And then what happened? Between uh, June 1st and now, I think we've had rain twice, if that. And, and not an inch uh, each time. I mean, way under an inch each time. I don't think it's rained now for 30 to 35 days. I think the temperature today is 104 high. Tomorrow's 104 high. Next day's 105. Then 104. Then 104. Then 105. Then 104. Then 105. Do you see a pattern emerging here? The ground is cracked. If you're not managing a pasture right now with animals in a very holistic grazing pattern and or irrigating in this climate, what your field will mostly look like right now is brown. I'm sorry. That's what it looks like this year. The deeper that soil, even if it's Blackland Prairie soil, the better shot you got. If you can go out there with a shovel and dig a hole two feet deep before you hit a rock, you can, you can probably have green right now. If you dig down six inches and hit slab rock, which a lot of this area is like that, <laughs> grass doesn't grow through rock. Trees can grow through rock. Grass can't. Right? It can grow a little bit into the tops of it. That's it. Um, and it's, again, this whole area is ocean bottom. And when you see that conglomerate layer of rock, you're looking at a layer of rock anywhere from one to four feet thick of solid slab conglomerate limestone. So you have either got to irrigate or you have got to manage with livestock sufficiently to improve the soil and build it to where it becomes more resilient, and you're still going to have problems this time of year, and what you need are trees. In this climate, you need hardy legumes to break into that rock, uh, to deal with that alkalinity, to produce a lot of leaf fall, uh, and then manage that with livestock. Um, if I had more land, there'd be cattle here. The flat, flat out truth. There'd be cattle on my property. If I had 10 acres, I'd probably be running about three or four head, uh, in half acre paddocks, uh, maybe quarter acre paddocks. And it, it, that is about the only way I can see to really improve this land. So overseeding is going to have to be limited to areas where you can provide at least some irrigation. Um, the best chance you have is, uh, high mowing. It's, I think it's high mowing. Uh, let me check real quick. I had that wrong. It's uh, it's groworganic.com, which is Peaceful Valley. Peaceful Valley has some dry land pasture mixes. If you can get those established in your fall through spring, a lot of that stuff is native dryland grasses, and it may adapt. Another great alternative for, for overseeding here in this climate is alfalfa. Now, the thing is, if you're in a place where you have soil a couple feet or more deep, even this crappy soil, alfalfa will put roots down 12, 16, 18 feet if it can. But it doesn't grow through rock. Okay, so if you're in, in if you're right adjacent to me and you've got a foot or less of soil, that's as far as those roots can go down. 
So that's going to be your primary limiting factor without grazing animals. Now, why do grazing animals change everything? Because grazing animals are imprinting the soil. They're, they're, they're converting the carbon into compost, right? They're, they're taking that, that, that grass. They're chewing it. They're putting it through. The problem in these climates where it's this hot, and this is true everywhere. This is true all the way up into Vermont, uh, you know, in, in, in the northern climates. But it's more true in the south. When grass is either cut or dies and falls to the ground, you think, well, that'll build soil. Not so much. If it just goes to the ground and it's not in a deep enough pile to be mixed in with other things and substances, it oxidizes and turns into almost nothing. It just basically burns up in this heat. And it does very little improve the soil. You put it through a ruminant and it comes out in pellets or patties, everything changes. So even here running these hundred ducks like they're a couple little head of cattle and paddock shifting them and all, right now if you dropped a match on certain parts of my property, wherever there's not irrigation, it would go up in a flame. And sadly in this climate, without taking a different look at the way you're managing the property, you're probably not going to change that in our summers. So then the key with your seeding is perennials that will come back, that will survive that, that will just go dormant and survive that and come back in the fall and the spring. Some of the things that have worked for me with that have been alfalfas, have been medics, like snails. Salva snail medic is is one that's worked well for me. Uh, Believe it or not, not out in the scorching open fields, but in the clumps with trees and all, Dutch white clover. It looks like it's dead, and then the fall it just comes back. The spring it just comes back, but the summer it's going to go away. But it'll it'll be there to come back. Uh, chicory has done very well for me. Plantain, it just you come out here in the in the in the summer and even into the fall, and you can't find any of it. And then in early winter it starts, and we have it right up until um, until you know till summer really kicks in, and then it goes away again. But by that time, all of the plants that grew through winter have put their big spiky heads on and dropped seed everywhere. So you're going to have to think about this a little differently. And um, and, and, and I don't, I don't want to go too much into you know region specific stuff here, but just the overall understanding you you have to no matter where you live when it comes to pasture management, look at your seasonal fluctuations and understand that in some climates like these really hot southern climates where we go almost almost middle you know midwestern winters, cold as hell. Plenty of days below 20 degrees. Ice and snow, we just don't get large amounts of ice and snow. We get, you know, two inches, four inches, and it goes away. And then we get an inch of ice, and then it goes away, like that. Uh, but then when we get into the summers, we get, I'd say, hotter and drier than most Mediterranean climates. You know, most Mediterranean climates don't have 106, 110 degree days. We do. You know, even the dry summers, they get a little bit more rain than we usually do. We often go, in this particular North Texas climate, from June 1st to September 1st, with almost no rainfall at all. People say, well, you get 38 inches, 42 inches some years. Yeah, but we don't get it when we need it the most. So we have to look at our summer in some ways like a winter. It is a pause. Just like you wouldn't get upset when everything's dead in the middle of winter if you lived in upstate Michigan, you you, you can't get upset that that happens to a degree here. Uh, especially in some of our more harsh environments. So I know that was long, but I just want to make clear, I don't always have the answer to stuff like this. I'm struggling with this one myself. As I learn more, I'll keep releasing information on it. 
Jack, do you have a recommendation for a small portable grill, something I could bring with me in my truck or my RV? Um, I know you've done shows with uh, recommending uh, smokers and such before, and I've looked at some of those, but they're just a little too big. Uh, right now I use a big green egg. I love it. It makes the best steaks and hamburgers and turkey and pork butt that I've ever seen. Um, and I'd love to make one for you someday and show you why it's better than the Weber, which was my go-to before. Anyways, uh, but I'm looking for something smaller. I'd consider gas or charcoal, and if you had a recommendation, uh, I'd appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye. Yeah, I do have a couple. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of options, but there's a few that I actually think are worth uh, considering. Uh, depending on what you mean by portable. I mean, personally, to me, a Weber kettle grill is something I would consider portable if I'm traveling with a pickup truck. Um, you clean it out so it's not going to make a mess, pick it up, toss it in the back of the truck. They don't weigh that much. Uh, bungee strap it to the to the cab and throw whatever else you have in the back of your pickup, and you're good. If you're using an SUV, or you could probably get in there, but you're probably not going to get it clean enough, and it's going to be dirty. And I understand that. Or you know, it's not really something great to put in the trunk of your car. They're not designed to fold up. So, but but to me, if I was going to the beach, let's say uh, ne next weekend, and I wanted to grill out on the beach, and I was taking my pickup truck, I'd just throw my Weber kettle in there. So just To be clear, when I hear portable, I think you need to go smaller and lighter than that, or at least smaller than that, to fit in a trunk of a car or what have you. So with that in mind, the first thing that, that sprung to mind for me is a, a product called the Volcano Grill. This is a collapsible grill, and there's a couple different versions of it. There's a Volcano 2, I believe is what they call it, and it is basically set up to use charcoal and or wood, and the Volcano 3 includes a propane burner. It is slick as hell. It folds to where it's only about 8 inches high, and it folds up. You just pick it up, and it kind of drops and locks in place. And you set your, your grill top on it and all. It all goes in a bag, stays nice and clean. It's not a huge cooking area, but it's plenty big enough for cooking, you know, in this type of a situation. I like, if I was going to get one, I would get the three. I was skeptical on this, and I'll get to why in a second. Uh, but Josiah owned one, and we played around with it while he was here, and it's a good tool, man. It, it, if I, if I owned one and was going to the beach, I probably wouldn't take my kettle grill. I'd probably take it. It'd be good enough sitting on the tailgate of the, of the truck. And I'd have a flexibility of gas, uh, or wood, uh, or charcoal. So, I mean, the, the wood charcoal flexibility is a bit hype because every charcoal burning stove can burn wood. That's the whole, there's not a special way to burn wood. It is designed very well. It's a very efficient burn that you get out of it. Uh, it runs off the small, you know, one pound propane canisters, which for that type of grill are a great way to go. Uh, there's no sense in bringing, you know, this little bitty grill around and then dragging this great big giant propane tank around. If you could handle the big propane tank, you could probably bring the bigger, big the bring, big the bring the bigger grill. Uh, the reason I was skeptical 
when I first saw this thing advertised, it was one of those things, you know, you get these emails, these spam emails online, and I, I took a look at this thing. It was called a crisis cooker, and it was from a company called Solutions from Science, who in the very early days, before I knew much about them, were actually a sponsor of the show, one of the few sponsors in history that I've ever fired. One day I got an email from uh, Solutions from Science saying that the grid would go down within six months and you better get their stupid solar generator. It ain't worth a fiddler's fart. Uh, before those six months are up, you're going to be without power. And I discontinued working with them the next day. Um, but they had this product called the Crisis Cooker that I saw after that, and I looked at that and said, that looks pretty damn good. Uh, that looks like a solid product. So being skeptical because of the company, I thought maybe it's not their product. Maybe they're just calling it that. And that's when I found out that it actually is called the Volcano Grill. They just got a bulk volume and they market it as this crisis cooker thing. So it's available on Amazon for, I believe, $150. Bucks. I got a link to it in the show notes for the three version. You can get it for as little as $100 bucks from like Sportsman Guide and Cabela's, but that's without the um, without the propane attachment. And I would say get that. I mean, you know, you can fit a, a one-pound jar of propane, all the accessories uh, in the bag with it so that it's it's set up and ready to go. you got a bag of charcoal and wood chunks, and you've got multiple cookouts that you can do. It's a pretty good product. And for a versatile product with as small a form factor as possible, that's what I'd recommend. If you wanted to buy a product that is somewhere in between, it's it's more portable and easier to pack than something like uh, a Weber kettle kettle grill, but it's almost as big and really affordable and kind of a nice product for what it is. Then there's a product called the Aussie Walkabout Grill. These sell for about eighty bucks on Prime on Amazon, shipped to your door. I feel like I haven't bought one in a long time. These are grills that I used at the beach. Uh, when I used to go to the beach surf fishing all the time, this is years ago, I used to go about 10, 12 times a year, and I always took a little Aussie walkabout with me to the beach, and I wore them out like crazy because just to keep them clean and put them back in the vehicle, I just get buckets of, of ocean water. So I was dumping salt water. I and mean, we all know what that does to metal. So I wore out two of these over about two years. But these things got a beat. And I cooked them. There's even videos of me cooking on them uh, at my house in, uh, in, in Arlington, Texas. So I used them up till about then. And I just feel like I haven't looked for them, so I'm not sure. But I always remember them, especially early in the year, at Home Depot, big display case of them, $49.99. And if, so if you can get them for less than Walmart or uh, Amazon, I would. Uh, I'm not one that buys names just for the sake of buying names. You know, branding only goes so far with me. But there's a lot of things that look like them that aren't. And as soon as you pick them up, you can tell the difference. Now, the Aussie Walkabout Grill, whether it's 50 bucks or 80 bucks, depending on where you find it, is not a lifetime purchase. It is a four or five season grill, and it will, if you use it significantly, it is probably a two and a half season grill, and it will wear itself out. And if you dump ocean water in it 12 times a year to clean it out, to put it back in your truck and not make a mess, well, it's, it's a one season grill. But for 50 bucks, it's a damn good grill. It has a big enough surface area to cook a lot. It's got a big enough, uh, uh depression that you can make a hot side and a cool side. Uh, it works great for what it is. You want to go small and versatile, then I suggest you look at a hibachi. Just a plain Jane, old school, 1970s, everybody had them, hibachi grill made out of all, you want one out of all cast iron. Cast iron grill, cast iron body, cast iron everything. The only thing would should be the handles. 
the best one I found is a little bit of a modified hibachi. They don't even call it a hibachi, but it's the Lodge L410 pre-seasoned sportsman's charcoal grill. It's a hibachi. It's just a little bit different. It's more of an oval shape. It's got a little door that opens. Uh, it's got a single grill on top. It's made by Lodge. They make good stuff. I mean, nobody makes cast iron like they did a hundred years ago, but Lodge makes the best that's available today, in my opinion. Uh, it's big enough, you know, to, to cook two steaks on. Um, you would play hell trying to have a cool side, hot side, but this doesn't close, so that's not going to happen. Anyway, hibachis are for cooking hot and fast. If you go to Greece, uh, at least where things are still normal or semi-normal, you'll see that there are people that every day or at least every weekend drive out to the cliffs by the sea, open up their trunk, and have the whole family sitting there and cook a whole bunch of really awesome food. Almost all of them are cooking on hibachis. They've been around forever because they work. They are not as versatile in some ways because you don't have a, a dome, a lid, a cover, that type of thing, but... With a little bit of ingenuity, you can do just about anything. You could very easily create some sort of a cover uh, that kind of sat down with some ventilation over top of a hibachi and cooked adjacent to it if you wanted to. There's a lot of different reflector ovens and things like that. That's getting a little bit specialized. But for quick cooking, hot cooking, and with the lodge, there is enough room that if you wanted to have a small area where you could move stuff off and kind of rotate it off, you can do that. So that would be another product that I would recommend that you look at. If you want just flat-out flexibility to be able to do things like cook in Dutch ovens and all, look at getting a Jamaican coal pot. Uh, I have a video of me cooking uh, lamb skewers on a coal pot. Um, and know this, I didn't really know what I was doing with a Jamaican coal pot yet. I had too much coal in it, and I had it too hot. Uh, but it worked anyway, and they're awesome. They're made out of cast aluminum. If you accidentally touch it, it'll brand you for life, and you'll wish you didn't once it's heated up. Uh, but you can burn charcoal in it. You can burn wood in it. You can cook on skewers over it without even using a grill. You can get a small grill top that'll fit it. Uh, they're great. I have a link to where you can... The only place I found real Jamaican coal pots uh, is a Jamaican store. It says orders resume August 10th, which is four days from now. I have a link to where you can look at that product. And you can, again, look at my video of, of look, you know, using it. I think they're awesome. Just know this. When I ordered mine, it took so long to ship, I forgot I ordered it. When it showed up, I didn't know what it was, and it looked like somebody played soccer with it in the customs office. I, it was just awful because it ships from Jamaica. So I'm not going to say that's going to happen, but I can't say that it won't happen. So those are the, the items I would say to look at for grilling. With the coal pot, you could grill, or you can more appropriate, like, cook in Dutch ovens and things like that as well. And last but not least, remember, Stephen Harris has the Scout stove. Now, that's not a grill. That's not a grill, but for a small cooker that will cook with a handful of twigs and tenders, uh, I do have a link to scoutstove.com with Stephen Harris. Uh, that little sucker, I think that belongs in everybody's trunk of everybody's car with a pot and everything. I mean, no matter where you are, you can whip something up, and uh, that's really, really awesome. Uh, I'm going to actually get a couple more of them, even though I got my first one for free. Anyway, with that, uh, let's go ahead and take another one of your calls. Hope that answers your question. Hey, Jack. Jesse calling from Vermont. I had a question about construction, specifically road construction. I was wondering what your thoughts are on it um, as far as, you know, possibly keeping the economy in check by uh, continuously building and fixing and repairing roads. It doesn't seem to end. Uh, I just thought about this while I was caught in a bunch of traffic due to the construction. 
Great show. Talk to you later. I, I'm not completely clear on the question here. Um, basically, it's like, do the public works of, of roads actually contribute to the economy and make Uh, the economy kind of tick along, being a, you know jobs and and whenever you have jobs and spending, then spending multiplies and there's more jobs and and do roads do that and are they the way to do that? Uh, okay, first of all, a disclaimer before I go further. If you ask me if Miracle Grow fertilizer works, I will say yes. Now there's a hundred reasons not to use it. But to say it doesn't work is stupid. Now, to say that it works, but it also does a lot of harm is intelligent. But you can't say it doesn't work. And could you, if you had no choice but to use Miracle for, uh, Miracle Grow Fertilizer, like that was it. You were in a place where you didn't have the fertility, you didn't have access to things. You were, Somebody was going to force you with a gun to use it. Well, that never happens. Well, somebody forces us with a gun to use everything the government forces us to use. That's how they force it, with a gun. So... Then I could say, okay, here would be how, you know, I would only use it at this rate and this way. So I'm going to kind of talk about roads and the government's maintenance and construction of them from that standpoint. Can I do it better without government? Probably. We could probably evolve there, but we're not going to anytime soon. So there's a million things wrong with the way that we do roads and bridge maintenance. And there's a ton of waste and there is a, a, a ton of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fraud. In, in this this world right now we have a, a road that is costing the people that live where I do hundreds of extra dollars a month and not being able to use it because of a freaking bridge and this freaking bridge is about 30 feet in span maybe I'm under maybe I'm underselling it maybe it's, by the time you look at the whole thing it's 50 foot of span and they've been jacking around with that for nine months nine months I'm gonna say it again nine months but they're paving a couple miles on each side of it I watched in Hicktown Arkansas 11 and a half miles of road paved on both sides and painted in three days. If you want to get it done, you can get it done. So there's no doubt that there's waste. There's no doubt that some companies get a contract on a certain highway or road, and the owner will retire off of that contract. They will milk it for every last second, and the guy will sell out the company at the end of it and go off to say what now and retire. So there's no doubt there's tons of waste. But if... Government is going to spend public dollars on anything. It should be things that the entire nation benefits from. We can make a case, weak though it is, for public education. Because an educated population is better for the country. That is true. No matter how libertarian or anarchist you are, it is, and I know what you're going to say, there's better ways to do it. I, I agree, okay, you're preaching to the choir, but... A nation full of educated people is better than a nation full of uneducated people. Now, how educated we really are, that's debatable, but setting up a good quality education system in a country is a good idea for the country of a whole. So we can make some case for, for public dollars going there. Roads benefit everyone. Even roads you never drive on, never think about, benefit you. Somebody drives on that road that does some job that benefits you some way. A good network of roads is, is necessary for a country to be successful and modern and have everything that we take for granted in this country. So if government's going to do anything with tax dollars, building and maintaining the infrastructure that we all use in the form of roads and bridges and overpasses should be at the top of the list. If we spent... 
double the money that we do now on roads and bridges, it probably still wouldn't fix the problem because the problem's not the amount of money. It's the way that it's managed. It's, it's the, it, it's the way that it's abused. It's the, you know, there's a highway commissioner on the take in every state and every county's got their own guy that's on the take and every city's got their own guy that's on the take and, it's a dirty business. The construction industry is a dirty business, and I don't know how to clean it up. But if it were run properly, I do think it would be a hell of a component of an economic engine for the country. Again, it's like miracle Grow. I'd prefer not to do it that way, but you could do it right, and you could end up with a pretty good product. So the way that it would have to be done right is you would have to have oversight that is impartial and honest. Now, when people are paying for something directly, they tend to pay attention. So it's this indirect payment that allows so much money. And that's the other thing. Understand what, what it costs to put in a mile of paved road today is, is insane. And it's not about labor. It's about all the crap that goes with it. And then it's about all the crap that goes with it that keeps people from dying, too. You talk to anybody that does soil engineering, not soil science to grow corn, but soil engineering, And you find out real quick, if you do things wrong, things like bridges collapse, roads cave in, roads watch out, etc. So there's a, there's a huge expense there. So if, I, if you could say, Jack, pick five things government gets to keep doing, and that's as good as you're going to get. That's as good as you're going to get, and everything else goes to the private sector. Or hold your breath, be an asshole, anarchist, and, and say it's only good if we get it all, and nothing happens. But you're going to give you this one wish, and there's five things that government gets to do and continue doing, uh, what would be on that list? I'd have to think about the other four really, really hard. But I would say roads, bridges, infrastructure, yes. That would be the first thing on the list. It is the thing out of everything that government does that has the largest single public benefit that there is. It, is. it is the most legitimate of the public works. I know some of my fellow anarchists are, are, are gnashing their teeth right now. Again, you can't deny what works. You can say that this other solution could work better if implemented. But you can't say, well, this doesn't work at all. Because most of you get in your car every day and go somewhere. And you get somewhere on those roads. You benefit from those roads. Well, they stole my money. Well, they stole my money too. And probably the people that say that, you know, the, 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 the elitist anarchists that say that, it's generally the case that they stole a lot more of my money than yours. Okay? So I'm not okay with that, but it is what it is. So I think that roads run properly are a huge economic engine because they have multiple ways they pay dividends. Road construction, if we employ the right people that are actually supposed to be legally working, and pay their taxes are good-paying jobs that result in a large working population who spend money. That money, you see, this is the other thing. In our fractional reserve, fractional reserve works. I don't like it, but it does work. And in a fractional reserve system, money has to be earned and spent and therefore earned again and respent. So the same dollar can end up doing, by the end of a year, a hundred or even a thousand dollars worth of work, and that's not through monetary creation lending. That's just through it being earned. I earn a dollar. I spend it to get something I need. You sold it to me. You've now earned a dollar. You spent it to get something, and that, and it just met, you know, if that dollar changes hands a thousand times, 
as profit, as a dollar of profit, it's, it does the work of $1,000 in the economy. And that's how our economy works. So do they do it? No. Could they do it properly run? Yes. Is government the entity to do it? Probably not. Probably not. There's probably a lot better way to run and manage road construction because in the end, it ain't free. We all paid for it. And in the end, government didn't build a single road in this country. Government has not built any roads. Government has never built a bridge. Government has never built shit. People working for private companies build the roads. Governments control the funding and the money and the oversight of the construction. Government functions like the general contractor managing individuals and corporations as subcontractors and the construction of all this infrastructure. So the question then becomes who's best suited to act as that general contractor? It's probably not government. But it's still the case that if we actually were efficient in our road construction, got shit done in a reasonable time frame, put stiff penalties on for people not meeting deadlines, that actually erased profit and did things the right way, they could be a valid way to drive middle-class incomes. And the, 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 the stark reality is from 1955 till about 1975 they were. Specifically, they were from 1950 to 1970. During that period, anybody that wanted a job could take their ass out and within a day find a job on road construction and make some money, and make some good money. My old man made the same kind of money working overtime back then that doctors made. You ain't going to do it today. That tells you something. Let's take another one. Jack, Brian from Delaware. My question is, can you think of any safe applications or recommendations for using recycled water from your clothes washing machine on fruit trees or anything of that nature? Detail. I plumbed our washer machine into a 300-gallon IBC tote on the side of the house, put fence around it, looks real nice, makes the wife happy, hooks up a garden uh bib on it and I have a 50 foot hose so it's no different than turning on my regular garden hose other than the water is recycled from the washing machine. I currently use it to wash down the driveway, wash the dog kennel off, just miscellaneous use around the house but I've been putting in a lot of fruit trees lately on the back of my property. I have four acres and was wondering if I hooked a couple hoses together and reached out to the trees, if that would be a safe use of that water. The water is kind of grayish blue. There's a bit of lint in it. Um, and or if that's not safe for food, do you know of any uh, organic or non-chemical-based detergents that perhaps if we change detergent, it would then change the, uh, you know, the, the, the safety of the water? Anyway, thanks for everything you do. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Uh, for fruit trees, etc., gray water is completely acceptable and totally safe. Some people even use gray water to to to, uh, to to water vegetable gardens. As long as you're looking at vegetables like, let's say, tomatoes that are staked up or something like that, I I, I would say don't. 
It's just probably not the best idea that there is out there. I prefer to use it for uh, bushes and shrubs and trees. That, that's what I would prefer to use gray water for. And the short answer is just do it. It's been done. It gets done. The, the most efficient way to do it is with a drip irrigation system that puts the water specifically to the base of the roots. What you do not want to do is spray it. So if you had some kind of a pump and you were pushing it through some sort of sprinkler system that sprayed it where it gets on leaves and stuff like you don't want to do that. You want it right on the ground. As long as you do that, by and large, you're going to be okay. As far as uh, soaps and things like that, you know, choosing things that say biodegradable, all natural is a good way to go. I have a link for you today to a, a website on harvesting rainwater uh, and gray water harvesting as well. Uh, that goes specifically to choosing gray water compatible soaps and detergents so you can look at what to avoid. And what they say to avoid is chlorine, beach, perioxygen, uh, sodium perborate. I don't think I want that on my body. Sodium tri trifochlorate, which I don't want on my body. Boron, borax, which we use in our detergent that we make ourselves, by the way, borax. Petroleum distillate. <laughs> Alclobenzenine. Quote, whiteners, quote, softeners. I think that you'd have to individually look at. Don't just take the state of California's word for enzymatic components. Again, don't just take their word for it. But uh, other than that, just go ahead and use it. Chlorine is one of the big things to avoid. If you're using chlorine in your washing, uh, what you want to do is you want to set up some kind of a valve. Like, so let's say you run a load of whites once in a while and use chlorine so that you can, you can send that particular rinse down the normal channel and turn it back to, to your gray water system. And that's always a good idea, uh, when you're putting in gray water systems to put in some sort of a bypass valve that allows you to continue to use the existing, whether it's septic or city sewer or whatever, and then, you know, change it back over and use that gray water for something useful. But it's, it's, it's got a long history, uh, and, and perma, if you build a house from scratch as a permaculturist, you're going to design the wastewater for that. The caution. Some people have simply decided to just dump gray water into like a lagoon to treat it. Um, not a good idea. And it, waterfowl like ducks to get in that water. There's oils in that water that are bad oils for them that will coat their leaves and, and literally make a duck drown. So if you're going to be using it in anything other than like a drip or spot application, you should build a gray water uh, recycling system, a reed-based, a sand and gravel-based system that processes it through and breaks those things down, and then it can go into a pond or a lagoon or something like that. But if all you're doing is drip or spot irrigation direct to ground for trees, shrubs, bushes, things like that, just do it. No big deal. No real worries. It is better to use detergents that are more environmentally friendly anyway, but especially if you're doing that. Hey, Jack. It's Brian in North Texas. Got a couple specific questions on your ducks. And the ones that maybe you couldn't delve into it a little deeper. Um, I guess the, my initial question is, how much are you actually feeding in commercial feed your ducks, either individually or per hundred or how, you know, however many ducks you have per day on there. I'm not sure what you should be feeding based on, you know, having, having ducks out on decent pasture for half or more of the day with you doing some sprouted seeds. How much actual feed are you using? Uh, the other question I have is, what are you using for your duck egg cartons? The, uh, 
stack eggs I'm currently getting are huge, and I'm having trouble getting cartons to fit those eggs. So I was kind of curious on what you're what you're using on there. All right, if you could uh, go into some of that in a little bit of detail, that would be great. I appreciate it, man. Love the show. Have a great day. Great. Two nice, easy ones in a row. Um, right now, we feed our ducks in commercial feed 30 pounds of feed a day, so um, a little more than half a bag a day. Sometimes getting more in the neighborhood of 25 pounds a day, depending on their utilization, how much of it they use by morning. If there is food by morning, and like this morning there was, we'll cut back their ration and just let them have what's there until they eat it. Uh, a little tip on that, a lot of times when you feed your ducks, and we just feed them now in these, these big, they're about 12-inch round galvanized metal dishes, like a big dog dish. You get them at Tractor Supply for about four bucks. And with all of the feeders that we've tried and all, this is just the best thing we've found. That ducks don't tend to like throw their feed like chickens do. So if you don't have chickens, those things, you set them there, you fill them up level, and they just eat it. And uh, they don't tend to crap in their food. They crap in water, but they don't tend to crap in their food that much. So it's been the easiest thing that we use. Well, what you'll find sometimes is after a while of just dumping food on top, you get the really fine crumbs of the feed, like a good quarter inch of it in the bottom. Dump that into a bucket and mix it with your fresh feed and dump it back in. That'll get them to use that stuff. So that that's how we feed them. And when they start using less feed by morning, what that tells us is they're getting more and they're not as hungry. And if they're not hungry, putting that feed out there just makes it stale and exposed to flies and whatever, so we'll cut them back. But in general, we end up a quarter pound of food a duck per day is enough. Now, our ducks are out all day. I get up at 7.30 in the morning. I turn the coffee maker on. I go out and open the cage. I come back in. I pour a cup of coffee, and I go out and take care of their kiddie pools. So they're out before 8 a.m. unless I sleep in. Occasionally I sleep in late. Uh, but on most days they're up, and, and frankly, by the time we get into fall, I'm usually up at 6.30. And in that case, they're staying until 8 o'clock just to make sure they're done laying before I let them out. Um, and once we get into, you know, once we get them out, they're out until dark. So in the summertime, they're out for 14 hours, 15 hours. You know, I mean, they're, well, I guess it's not that long. Uh, they're out 12, 13 hours. A lot of times they're going in around 9 o'clock at night. And they spend all day eating grasshoppers and what have you. And it, as I alluded to earlier, you know, the pasture's not that great right now because everything's brown. Uh, but that means grasshoppers are happy and they're eating all that carbon and the, the ducks chase the grasshoppers. But everywhere we're irrigating, the grass is green. So right now, I'm not locking them into the paddock the way I usually do. Uh, they got, I got three paddocks and right now they can get to either of two. And because the third one is just needs to be rested. And all I do is move their pools to the area I want them to concentrate on for this time in summer. I want to give them as much freedom to stay cool while it's 100 plus degrees as possible. And, and that gives them a good diet. That gives them greenery. That gives them seeds. That gives them grasshoppers and what have you. And they're happy. And, you know, we got them back, you know, as soon as we got them out of their little shock they were in for my nephew's screw up once he took over for the, the care. We had a guy named Ryan from the audience did a great job with them. And my nephew took them for the last five days of vacation. And we've learned now that when ducks are upset, they just stop laying for a while. Uh, so we had this hole in our production. But they're, they're doing great now and they're happy. And quarter pound a day is all we, we're giving them. You need to think about that based on how much utilization they're getting from you. And if they start to get fat, you need to cut them back too. If they get fat, they also cut back on laying. 
So keep an eye on them. They should, a duck should be plump but not fat. It should waddle, not roll. Okay? Um, but I wouldn't go above a third. Uh, if, if, if your ducks are getting out every day and you're feeding them more than a third pound of food, they're not working hard enough. Unless there's not much to be worked for. I mean, if you're near me, this, this is a harsh environment. We've got little pockets they can work. If we didn't have those, we'd probably have to feed them more. If you were feeding them and keeping them confined, I'd say you're looking at 0.4 to a half pound. So that's, that's how I work those numbers. As far as how we package them for sale, we buy the 50-cent cardboard egg cartons. And what we've learned is you take, you know, we get a lot of big eggs, a lot of regular, you know, what I call a regular egg is like a big chicken egg that will fit in a carton. We get a lot of, like, jumbos that the carton won't close on. And we get a few that are a little bit smaller. We get a mixed bag. To make it fair to everybody, we try to make sure that we don't have one carton full of jumbos, one carton full of large, and one carton full of smalls. We mix them up. Occasionally, ducks, especially when they first start laying, will lay small eggs. When they do that, we put them aside. We sell them as miniature eggs when we have them, and we don't have them often. But like when these white ducks just started laying, we had miniature eggs for about three weeks. We sold them for four bucks a dozen uh, just because they were really small. And now that they're all back to size again, what we do is the jumbos, put them on the outside of the carton. So when you close the carton, you've got where the hinge is, you've got the back row. If you put them there, it won't close at all. If you put them in the front, it'll usually close mostly. And if you have a carton that won't close in, in lock, you just take one of those cheap, wide uh, rubber bands. You can buy, you know, a thousand of them for five bucks. The green ones, you know what I'm talking about? The ones when you were a kid, you used to wear around your wrist, they came either brown or green, right? A rubber band like that. And you don't have to double it or anything. Just one, you know, just stretch it over and set it in the center to hold it closed. And it doesn't close all the way. Doesn't matter. And you know what your customer thinks? Wow, those are big eggs. I mean, that's what we do. And it, it works perfectly. So that's how we handle that. Uh, good question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Tim from Colleyville. I've got a question for you. What do you think about adding cats as part of a pest control solution, as part of a permaculture uh, homestead? We have a half acre here, and I've got a barn that's probably 40 or 50 years old. It's full of rats and mice and squirrels. I'm thinking about getting a big old mean cat from the city pound to help me with that, but I know that there's downsides to having cats around, including waste disposal, and also the cats are not selective about what they kill, and I could lose a lot of some birds and the birds that I want around here. So that's the question for you. What do you think about adding a cat as part of, uh, pest control solution on a homestead. Thanks, man. Appreciate the show. Well, that's definitely a first-time question, and, and one I do have some experience with and some thoughts on, and something we 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 take into consideration. We've we've developed some problems with mice and rats, and as good as Charlie is at trying to get them, he's a dog, and they go in places he can't get to, and he's a dog, and he gets excited, and I mean, he'll damage stuff trying to get. A, a, a mouse or a rat. Um, if he gets one, it's it's over quick. But it's harder for him to be successful. Cats, when it comes to dealing with mice, rats, and rodents, once they determine that that animal's there, they have a lot more patience than a dog. Uh, they're the kind of creature that will camp out and wait for opportunity. They have incredible night vision, incredible agility, incredible flexibility. They can get into places that, that no dog can. I mean, a cat, if a cat can fit its head into something, even if it's a fat cat, its body will collapse like jello and it can get its whole body through. 
and can do it without damaging stuff. Not that the cats never damage anything. We'll get that in a second. But, I mean, when it comes to the predator of the barn to maintain a, an, a, you know, a low rodent population, there's not much you'll do it better. I guess a trained ferret might be a close second, but that's a, a whole other ball of wax. They do kill indiscriminately from our viewpoint. Okay, Our viewpoint is, I want you to kill this, not that, and they'll kill this and that. They don't kill indiscriminately from their viewpoint. Cats are opportunistic hunters. And cats are also very much led by a little bit of hunger. So a cat will kill out of uh, playfulness and instinct. But they get a lot more on the job if they're not fed till they're fat. So I would never suggest that somebody gets a barn cat and let it make a living for itself. I think that would be a terrible practice, especially in a small piece of property. Because what you get is a very far-ranging cat then. If you, if you tell a cat you have to make your own living, it will say, okay, and it will do it. It will also have a lot less loyalty to your location as its home and may decide it doesn't want to live there anymore. Because the big one of the biggest downsides of cats is unlike dogs, they don't give a shit about fences. They'll go straight over a fence in no time at all. So, I want my cat, if I'm going to have a cat on my property, it's going to be an outdoor cat, to be fed well enough to just want to hunt whenever the opportunity comes up, but not be so driven by hunger that it wants to range. So I probably want to feed that cat, you know, you, whatever its daily ration is, That, that would be like a perfect maintenance ration. Like your vet would say, if you're feeding this cat seven ounces of food, six ounces of food, whatever it is a day, whatever whatever that number is, you cut it back by 10 to 15%. Just to keep that hunger up. And if it starts to look really thin, put some weight back on it, pull them back down. Just like managing a falcon, if you're a falconer, or a hawk, if you're a falconer. They very careful management of the weight. That has that cat saying, if something comes up, I'm going to kill it and eat it. But if I don't kill it and eat it today, I'll be okay till tomorrow. Hey, the old man will come out and throw me a piece of bacon or something feel bad for me. Okay? That's how I like to manage cats. And the best food for your cats, go buy the cheapest generic tuna fish you can get. You'll spend less than you will on cat food. I swear to God, I wouldn't lie to you. It costs less than cat food. It's 100% fish. It's 100% protein. Cats are not supposed to eat corn and wheat. They don't have grinders. They have fangs. Take a look at them. They have claws and fangs. They're predators. They're supposed to eat meat. So that is probably the best thing you can be feeding your cat for health and for good weight maintenance. Plenty of fat in there, too, from the oil and the fat from the fish. You keep the cat off carbohydrates, you're not going to have a fat cat even if you feed it a full ration. There you go. Little cat 101 for you. Now, what I didn't like I heard was a big, mean cat. And I know you might just be saying that. But what that usually leads to is I'm going to go find the biggest, baddest-looking tomcat I can with big old set of nuts on him. And fortunately, the shelter will probably make you have him neutered if he isn't already because that will help a little bit. But if you have a tom, toms are far more territorial than female cats. And they're going to do a lot more roaming hungry or not, even if you neuter a cat, a male's hardwired to be territorial and look for mates, even if it's not really looking for mates. It doesn't really know what it's doing. Like, i got to find other cats. I don't know why. i got to find other cats, that kind of thing. So a, a spayed female 
is going to be much more of a homebody. With a half acre, you want as much a home because that's that's going to be tough. If you had ten acres, I'd say yeah, just get you a couple barn cats and, and, and go on about your business, especially if the barn's kind of central, because they're going to kind of figure out, hey, I got this great territory to defend. I ain't got to go nowhere. The old man feeds me every day. There's all kinds of mice here to eat. There's all kinds of places to play and hide. I don't got to go anywhere. And, you know, when Ralph was our old tomcat, he was mostly an outside cat here on the property. He very quickly snapped to that perimeter fence, and he didn't leave. When he was younger, I promise you, he would have left. He would have left all the time. He was old, he was tired, he was worn out, and he got his three years of retirement here, and it was good for him. So that actually might be another thing to look at. As long as you can find you don't want a declawed cat for this, a cat that has lived outside. Now, tell the shelter it's going to be an inside cat, because they're going to tell you, oh, you can't have it. Just shut up. Just t tell them what they want to hear. But if you find a, a tom uh, or a female that's in good shape, eight, nine, ten years old, that cat's still got eight, nine, ten years in it. Cats routinely live 20 years. And it's gotten out of that excitable stage. That wandering stage, it's kind of chilled, it's mellowed, it's middle age, man. It's 45. Think of the difference between a 25-year-old kid, Woo-woo, party, ah, we're going to go out get tore up, right? A 45-year-old dude, like, yeah, man, that's all right. I got to put the kids to bed, make some toaster pizza, have a beer and go to sleep and chill out, man. I, I'm not, that's, ah, no, man, no, you got to turn that down. Get that shit away from me. Let's go to Fort Lauderdale. Man, you go to Fort Lauderdale, man. I want to go to the Caribbean and sit on a, right? So you, you You can play that a little bit with adopting an animal. You don't have to have a kitten. Um, and they'll quickly home. They'll learn, like, this is my place. Like, if you feed a cat, keep it in the barn for, like, a day. That's all it takes. They're not going anywhere once they know they're getting fed. I want a friendly cat to people. I want a cat that when I, when I walk out there, that cat's like, oh, dude, it's you. And he runs over to you, starts rubbing your leg, pet it, give it a cat treat, whatever. I want a friendly, happy cat. I want a cat that sees itself as part of the family. That's going to make it easier for that cat to realize, don't mess with the ducks. Don't. And I want a cat that gets along with dogs, especially if you own dogs. I want a cat that's like, hey, dogs are chill, people are chill, animals are chill, mice are to be eaten. The indiscriminate killing, songbirds. So why do cats kill songbirds? Because we feed them and get them to congregate. We get them to congregate in a little clump of trees, okay, We feed them in feeders that spill a lot of feed on the ground and are wide open around that little clump with a little clump over here. And a cat is very smart and figures out, I'll hide in this little clump and get really low to the ground. When they all start feeding, sooner or later, one won't see me and I can make that dart across that open area and kill that bird. So if we feed birds with things like feeders that have bottom catchers, so that when they knock seed out of the feeder, it gets caught and can be thrown back in the feeder, and we don't create target-rich environments for our cats, they're not going to kill a lot of songbirds. you know. And they're, they're going to take them at times. When, when babies get out of the nest early and can't fly, cats go kill it. I mean, that's what they do. But they're going to spend a lot more time focused on those rodents because the rodents are always on the ground. They're moving around their level. And if they're living in a place like a barn or a feed barn or something like that, and that's the cat's home, I don't even have to leave, man. All I got to do is chill out here at night, purr a little bit, wake up when the moon comes up, and wait. So I think it's a valid strategy. My only concern is the size of your property. I haven't done it here. I haven't replaced Ralph. 
My wife always says, never another cat, because she's tired of cleaning Alice's poop out of the poop box. Alice is an inside special kitty, and I'm petting her with my foot right now underneath the thing. And it does get old, changing cat litter and and what have you. And, it, you know, it smells up the... If it doesn't get done a day, it smells up the room, the, the laundry room and whatever. So I'm with her. I don't want another inside cat. What's held me off is I do have neighbors, two neighbors that are rel relatively close, and I don't want my cats up in their business. I don't want them messing with their stuff. So the more you can get a homebody cat, you know, the more you can make that work for you. That, that's, that's, I think, maybe one of the more important things. You know, and adopting is the way to go, but don't limit yourself to just, like, a shelter. Consider, like, Craigslist and things like that. Um, and I would try to find, you know, that seven- to eight-year-old cat that's been neutered uh, or spayed its whole life, that's spent a lot of time outside up till now, uh, that's friendly, that's dog and people friendly. Uh, and I'd want it dog-friendly because even if you don't have a dog, you don't know if you might want a dog someday. And I know people always say, you know, fight like cats and dogs. But, man, um, my cats and dogs have always got along. i got picture after picture of them sleeping together on the same bed and what have you. So uh, it's not unusual really at all. I actually find it more the exception. It's more stray cats that have been rehabilitated that have had to worry about dogs and stuff like that that are hard to deal with. And the animal doesn't have to be big. Uh, I heard you say big, too, and I know it's just something men say, big old, big old mean, right? But, um, you know, your, your, your six, seven, eight, nine-pound uh, female is every bit the match for the, the, the rats and the mice. And Again, you, you get a smaller cat, spayed or neutered, less likely to roam. A spayed female, she's not going to be going to heat, so she's not going to be attracting the toms into your yard and things like that. You know, if you've got a dog... I don't know about your dogs, but my dogs real quickly snap to, oh, this is our cat. This cat lives here. We like this cat. That cat that I just saw in the backyard does not belong here, and they run him off. So what happened, like with Ralph, was he was always the underdog because he was declawed, and it was not something we did to him when we adopted him off the street. He was already declawed. He was an outdoor cat. He'd lived outdoors his whole life. Trying to turn him into an indoor cat just did not work. He would scream, yell, holler and, until he was hoarse, and he would pee on the walls if you didn't let him out. So cat pee stinks, so out he'd go. When he got here, he snapped to the fact there were cats in the neighborhood, but after about a week, none of them would come inside the fence. So he would just strut along that fence. It's my territory. I kick ass all around. Well, he wasn't kicking ass. The dogs were. So that's another advantage. You get a dog and cat that get along, The dog still knows that cat's not my cat. And that ends up with the cat being more likely to be a homebody because they've got a team now, and they know that their their yard is protected. So those are my thoughts on cats. Let's uh, take one more, and we'll wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack, this is Chris. Um, Long-time listener, Carbon on the forum, and probably Miss B supporter. I've been listening to the podcast lately, and hearing Karim move to Texas made me just realize it's been a year since he moved, and just wanted to thank you for walking to freedom and just giving all the information that you do. You help us realize that moving out of New York to Texas was one of the best things we could have done. Thanks, Jack. And we live in Plano right now, and hopefully one of these days we can visit you guys at the Nine Mile Farm and buy some duck eggs. Thanks, man. You and Dorothy, you guys rock. Thanks. Bye. Krim might be listening and going, that's not a year since I moved. I think what he actually meant was a year since we moved. Uh, so this gentleman uh, moved here as well as part of the Walking to Freedom Initiative. And I, I you know, 
when I first heard the term strategic relocation, and I saw it being marketed that way to the prepper community with all this gloom and doom attached to it, I really didn't like it. But the more that I think about it, what walking to freedom is, is simply strategic relocation. You, you, eventually, you have to start looking around. For instance, this individual lived in New York and just say, for what I want in my life, does where I live give that to me? And then you say to yourself, well, if it doesn't, well, it does. And you'll quickly realize this, nowhere. If you are a truly libertarian-minded individual, libertarian anarchist, there is no place to go that will give you everything you want. But there are places to go that will give you more of what you want and less interference. And there are definitely places that simply by going there, you can literally just put money in your pocket. When, when, when I look at what our friends in New Jersey, until they finally got smart and got out of there, were paying for property taxes, I don't even understand. These people had a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house uh, in a nice part of, Stirl uh, of New, New Jersey called Sterling. Okay, this is a, it's a pretty area. It really is. If it wasn't for the government and a lot of the other people there, it'd be great. Um, but all those other people in the government are there. They were paying fourteen thousand four hundred and some odd dollars a year in property taxes on a three bedroom, two bath house on about a quarter acre of land. Now it was a nice house, but it wasn't that nice of a house. Let's do a little bit of mathematics on that one, shall we, friends? That's twelve hundred dollars a month in property tax on a three bedroom house. You can rent a nice three-bedroom house in North Texas for $800 to $1,200 a month. You can buy one for $120 to $150. That's really nice. It'll probably be $120, $150 here. It'll probably get you new construction in four bedrooms. Your total payment, taxes, insurance, mortgage, with 3% down FHA loan, is going to land somewhere between $1,200 and $1,400 a month. Why the hell would you live in a place where you can pay $14,000 a year in taxes? I mean, you've just basically put that entire $14,000 a year back in your pocket. There's people busting their ass in this country barely make $14,000, $15,000 a year. You know, working part-time jobs and stuff like that. So... You know, the monetary is just one thing. You know, another thing I think did it for a lot of a lot of people left New York over the gun thing. You know, and they said any magazine over ten rounds makes you a felon. People just said, you know what, I'm I'm not doing this anymore. I've 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 taken it up the butt for ten years, twenty years, whatever it is. I've paid your taxes. I've dealt with your crap, and that's it. You and a stroke of a pen have turned me from a law-abiding upstanding, respectable citizen into a felon overnight because I possess something made of plastic or metal that hurts nobody. That's it, I'm done. And I think we need more of it. I think people are starting to see it actually happen. I think states like California, Illinois, and New York mainly are really seeing it. California has the most resiliency. California has such a huge influx of, of illegal aliens to do menial work. And California has such an amazing climate. I mean, it's just, it really does. It, it, again, that's another place. If you just got rid of most of the people and all of the government, it'd be a great place. It really would. Um, and it's got so much 
built into it already. That they're, they'll, they'll hold fast a little bit longer out there than they will in Illinois and New York. Illinois and New York are sinking ships. They always say when rats start bailing off the ship, right, you know that it's, it's time to go, but it's not the rats leaving. The rats are staying. The rats don't leave until the mass starts to go below the water, right? The, the smart people are the ones that go, yeah, you say the ship's going to be okay. Yeah, we're getting a lifeboat. We're the hell out of here. Oh, you don't want us to? Well, tough shit. You said it's going to be fine. You won't need this lifeboat b -b -b by now and get out. And that's what walking the freedom is. It's taking a lifeboat early and getting out before it goes down. But, I mean, the, the bigger thing is it is finding, finding your version of freedom. And I think what people really need to understand is that is the point of a republic. That is the point of our country. Our founders did not leave us a perfect government, but they left us, if properly attended to by the citizenry, the best government of our time. Now, it's not properly attended to by our citizens. So they put checks and balances in the system. And we learn about these in school. The three branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial, and how they all perform checks on each other. But that's where it stops. They don't teach us the other checks and balances in our system. Another check and balance in our system is jury trial. Um, it's also law enforcement. So by not having law enforcement be militarized, By not having law enforcement, they're doing everything they can to militarize it, aren't they? But the way law enforcement is supposed to work is it's supposed to be individually managed by the states and local officials. They figure out what they want for themselves. Law enforcement officials live where they work. And so you pass a law that says it's a felony to have a 10-round magazine. Well, when... As a police officer, I happen to stop somebody and through routine legal search determine they have a 20-round PMAG on them. The first thing you got to do is have a law that makes enough sense that I'm going to put them, put them in jail for it. Because I just might be like, I don't see that. And the government would like you to believe that's a law enforcement officer not doing his job. No, pricks, that's a check on the system. That's why they're trying to get rid of good law enforcement officials and brainwash these guys. Right? I just saw a thing yesterday where a guy is in his own driveway backing out his vehicle with a, his boat, and a cop pulls up and starts taking pictures of his trailer. So the guy walks around, says, what the heck are you doing? The cop gets out of the car, points a gun at him. You know? And, and the guy videos the whole thing. And the cop says, what are you, some kind of constitutionalist or something? And, I mean, you can only expect the guy to say so much. He handled it as best I've ever seen anybody do it. But, I mean, what I was thinking right there is, aren't you? Isn't that what you took an oath to, asshole? Some kind of constitutionalist or something. So, so that's a check. Okay, and then when that check fails, when an improper law is enforced, you have another check. Prosecuting attorney has to decide, do I want to prosecute this? And if that check fails... Then you have the jury itself. The jury is a check, is a check and balance. Yes, we caught the individual with two ounces of marijuana. The law says he's guilty. Here it is. The guy says he did it. The jury can still go, not guilty. But we, not guilty. Did we stutter? Not, and, and the guy's he's free to go. He cannot be tried again for the same crime, double jeopardy. That's a check on the system. This is... The checks and balances that are key to keep a republic running effectively and for liberty, for individual liberty. And then the member states are the final check. When all those other checks have failed, 
the individual citizen, with no loss of their liberty, no loss of their wealth, no loss of anything, is to be able to pick up and move to another member state and continue their life unabated as a check on the system. That's what walking to freedom is. We need more people exercising that check. Your fellow citizens have laid down on the job. Every citizen should be a sentinel, but they're not. We have ill-informed idiots electing people who are bought in our government today. We have a system that isn't working. But this one last piece of it is how you send a message. It's the strongest vote you'll ever cast. And I'm not telling you everybody should move, or everybody should move to Texas, right? Don't move to Texas because I'm here. Move to Texas because Texas fits you. Don't come here and try to change shit. We don't like that here. We really don't. Well, Jack, what if all the liberal hippies from California come to Texas? They can go to Austin and stay on their little hippie island and leave the rest of us to hell alone. Or if they're gun-toting hippies, they'll be welcome throughout the whole damn state. I mean, really, and I know I hate being single issue on anything, but I've found that if I have a hippie buddy and that hippie buddy is pro-gun, we get along in every other way. It's amazing. It's, it, it's, it's incredible what happens. If that person believes in the right to self-defense, then they, they're, they're a hippie, but they're not a progressive liberal socialist. They're, they're, they're not the same thing. So when I say hippie, I'm talking about, that, that's your word, not mine. What, what I'm talking about progressive liberal socialists from California that moved to Austin because they can't find a job in California anymore. Stay your ass in Austin. You want things all golf course like? Go find an eight. We got lots of them. Go find an HOA. Stay your ass there and don't worry about us out here. Way out here. In fact, you know what? I'm going to give you guys a little treat today. I'm going to wrap up today's show with a different song instead of uh, The Revolution Is You. Come on down to Texas if you want to. And if you want to be way out here, understand what it means. Don't try to change it. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Our houses are protected by the good Lord and a gun. And you might meet them both if you show up here, not welcome, son. Our necks are burnt, our roads are dirt, and our trucks ain't clean. The dogs run loose, we smoke, we chew, and fry everything out here. Way out here. We won't take a dime if we ain't earned it. When it comes to weight, brother, we pull off. Cause it's mostly us that end up serving overseas If it was up to me, I'd love to see this country run 
Like it used to be, like it ought to be, just like it's done out here. Show up here, not welcome, son. <laughs> 